All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 42, if you will. Genesis chapter 42, we find ourselves in verse 25 this morning as we continue looking at the life of Joseph together in a series we've entitled, The Lord is With You. And as we begin, we begin in verse 25, and then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money there and it was, there it was in the mouth of the sack, So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack. There's a lot of sacks going on. Then their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Let me ask you a question. If you were to self-analyze yourself, would you consider yourself a pessimistic person or an optimistic person? Well, if you don't know, if you're here and you're married, just ask your spouse. If you have your best friend with you, ask them. But maybe we need a test, a very sophisticated, glad I don't talk, sophisticated test. I think it was created in Harvard. When you look at a glass half full, do you see it half full or half empty? The questions get harder from here. Which of these two seven dwarfs do you identify with? Grumpy or happy? When watching the Winnie the Pooh, do you relate better to Winnie or Eeyore? Now again, this is a very scientific fact, especially in our scientific community today. But as a Christian, we simply can't reduce our outlook to simply optimistic or pessimistic. In reducing it to that, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. Because as a Christian, we have a much larger worldview, we see things differently, and we have God active in our life. So for us, we can't simply reduce it to pessimism or optimism, but we must look at the world either horizontally or vertically. Now let me repeat that. Our outlook, may it be pessimistic or optimistic as Christians, is derived from our perspective of being horizontal or vertical. When I see things through the light of God and His Word, I can have a much different perspective than those around me who don't have that relationship with God. I can be confident that no matter what circumstance I find myself in or whatever happens within the world around me, I can be confident of this, that God is working out His plan perfectly. Now, he may not be doing it the way I would do it. See, God doesn't consult me. He doesn't call me at the beginning of the week, Eric, this is what I'd like to do this week. What do you think? Well, God, I think we could do it better if we did it this way. God doesn't consult me. And I'm thankful for that. God perfectly is unfolding his will, his plan, that he has orchestrated, architected before the foundations of the world. 
And Job told us very clearly that nothing that man does can hinder the plan and purposes of God. Nothing. You know, we see our country going through changes, to say the least. And yet, in the midst of it all, two weekends ago, Pastor Greg Laurie at the Harvest Crusade saw 8,900 people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Regardless of the rules and regulations and everything that is happening, God is still actively at work saving those who are lost, bringing them to repentance, reconciling with them through Christ, and restoring them to the people that He wants them to be, the men and the women that He wants them to be. But we have to understand that God's ways are not our ways. And his ways are always higher than ours. And his wisdom is so much vastly superior to our wisdom. But we can be assured of this, that everything that is occurring around us is unfolding the plan of God before us. And in the end, when we see its completion, we are going to be amazed. Joseph's brothers find themselves in a place where they're seeing things from their perspective. They have guilty consciences because 22 years earlier, they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. But before doing that, they threw him in a pit and hoped that he would die. He was Jacob's favorite. He was given a a coat of many colors to show that he was going to be the successor to Jacob. The firstborn from his favorite wife, Rachel. However, though, as time played on, God gave Joseph a dream, actually two. And in those dreams, he told Joseph that he was going to do something. But Joseph didn't fully understand what those dreams meant. After having those dreams and telling his family, they reacted like brothers, older brothers would. Who do you think you are, kid? And they began began to despise him. They began to uh, hate him. They grew bitter towards him, and they wanted to get rid of him. And that's exactly what they tried to do. You think you got civil rivalry. How's that? But while he was in the pit, they said, you know, let's make a few bucks off this kid. Why just let him die? They, They were good guys. They were nice. Very thoughtful. They thought it out. Hey, we'll make a few bucks. So a group of Ishmaelites were traveling through on their way to Egypt, and he says, hey, let's sell them to those guys. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know, we might as well profit off it, and then we can hit Golden Corral on the way home. That's in the Eric Standard Version. And as he was taken in captivity by the Ishmaelites, came to Egypt, and then was sold into slavery into Potiphar, the captain of the guard's home, where he blessed the home, God blessed the home, and he became the chief steward of everything that Potiphar had. The Bible says that Potiphar wasn't even aware of his material possessions. He was fully confident that Joseph could steward them perfectly. But in it all, Potiphar's wife had a different idea in mind, and she tried to seduce him day in and day out, day in and day out, and Joseph refused He couldn't betray uh, the captain of the guard, Potiphar, in that way. He couldn't betray his God that way. 
And so one day it became so aggressive that he just simply ran out of the room to avoid the temptation. Unbeknownst to him, she had a hold of his cloak and he ran out naked. I'll leave that to you. And then, of course, she falsely accused him. He was arrested. He was thrown into prison. Two others came. You know the story. The cupbearer and the, and the baker came. And, well, he interpreted the dreams in which they had. When the cupbearer was restored to Pharaoh, he said, listen, before you leave, remember me uh, when you get to Pharaoh's court and see if you can, you know, speak to him and give him a, a heads up that I'm down here and so forth. Well, lo and behold, two years had gone by because the cupbearer forgot Joseph. Now, I don't know about you, but if I started to see God's plan unfold in my life, beginning with a pit, slavery, and in prison, I'd say something went wrong somewhere. This can't be God working in my life. There's just no possible way. How could this be? Things have only gotten harder since I've become a Christian. Things have become more difficult since I've become a Christian. God's plan is unfolding, but it's certainly not unfolding the way I would have expected it to. God didn't consult me on the best way to take me from point A to point B. And yet in the whole scheme of things, God was working perfectly, preparing Joseph before placing Joseph exactly where he wanted Joseph to be. Well, Pharaoh then had a dream. The cupbearer then remembered. Joseph spent two long years in prison of just pure monotony, subjected to the same daytime television day in and day out. Okay, come on. These are jokes. These are some of the best ones I got. Work with me here. Please don't leave me hanging. And after a while, one night Pharaoh has a dream that he doesn't understand about a series of cows and sheaves, and uh, he doesn't understand, and he calls all of his advisors together and says, what does my dream mean? None of them could answer it. Then the cupbearer finally comes to his senses and says, hey, you know what? Oh, man, I totally forgot this guy. I know this guy. You know, Pharaoh, don't worry, I know a guy. I know a guy in prison. He can interpret this dream for you. And so sure enough, Joseph came out and Pharaoh said, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph said, no, not me, but my God can. And sure enough, he told them the dream. He told them all about it detail-wise, and then Joseph gave the interpretation. Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of plenty, and there's going to be seven years of famine. Then Joseph suggested, may I suggest, Pharaoh, that we take of the plenty and store it for the years of famine so that we can sustain ourselves through those severe times of hunger. Pharaoh thought it was a great idea. Joseph said, you just need to find a guy to fulfill it. Well, lo and behold, Pharaoh taps taps Joseph's shoulder. And as a result... Joseph is now put second in command. Sure enough, this time of severity, of famine hit, and Joseph was now in a position as prime minister of all of Egypt. He went from the prison, the pit, to the prison, to the palace. And now he's in a position that God had always wanted him to occupy, being prepared first and foremost by 
the years that he stood in the pit and in the prison and now in the palace. The famine became so great that his brothers and fathers began to feel the effects of it. And Jacob said to the brothers at the beginning of chapter 42, hey, you know what? There's grain down uh, down in Egypt. Let's send you there to buy some. And he sent 10 of the brothers and kept Benjamin back. And lo and behold, when the brothers got there, the one that they had to interact with was none other than Joseph himself. But yet Joseph spoke harshly to them. They didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. And as he was interacting with them, he says, I don't think you're here simply to buy grain. I think you are here to spy on the vulnerability of the land of Egypt and to exploit it. I think you're spies. Three days, Joseph had his brothers sit in prison. And during this time, they began to recall in their minds what they had done to their brother Joseph, realizing that they are now in Egypt, realizing that they are now in prison. And they begin to say to themselves, we've brought this on ourselves. God is dealing with us for our sin. But God had a much bigger plan in mind. And as we come to this portion of our text today, we discover that after three days, Joseph has a change of heart and says, listen, if you'd like to prove to me that you are not spies and you are truly honest men, they claim that they were honest men. Could you imagine Joseph saying that? Really? Honest? Yeah, honest to God, you threw me in a pit. You sold me into slavery. Yeah, you're honest guys, all right. Honest as a Chicago politician. And as a result, they now find themselves confronted with the consequences of their sin. And it begins to draw out of them repentance. After three days, he says, you know, I'd like you to prove to me that you are not spies. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to keep one of you back and I'm going to send nine of you home with grain so you can feed yourselves and you can feed your families. But I want you to bring your younger brother, Benjamin, back with you. I want you to prove to me that you're exactly who you say you are. Now, Joseph knew who they were, but Joseph wanted to see Benjamin Again, his brother from Rachel. They were from the same biological mother. And he wanted to bring all of them to Egypt so that he could reveal himself to them. But in Joseph's heart, forgiveness was already at work. And he sends them away, giving them the grain in which they needed to survive. And as they're making their way back, They open one of the satchels, the sacks, if you will, and discover that the grain is not only there, but their money too. The money that they had brought with them to purchase the grain. And notice with me that they react in a vertical manner, a pessimistic manner, rather than an optimistic one. They're now questioning, what has God done to us? Why has this occurred? How can we go back now because they're going to think that we stole our money and took the grain? But yet in it all, 
what we see occurring before us is Joseph's forgiveness manifested in grace. How can we be assured of God's forgiveness? It's because of the grace that he has shown us in and through Jesus Christ. How can we be sure that if we come to God, he will forgive us of our sins? It's because God demonstrated his grace towards us by sending his only begotten son. And in that demonstration of his grace, he also demonstrated to us his incredible love for each and every one of us. And if we will repent and believe by faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ, a process of reconciliation occurs. And in that reconciliation, the process of restoration. For them, their sins still haunted them. Because they didn't realize that Joseph was alive. They had told Joseph that they believed that he was dead. Now, they didn't recognize him because he shaved his face. He spoke through a translator to them. So his identity at this point is still hidden. But as soon as they saw the money in their sacks, they immediately concluded that this was just another sign of their guilt before God. And they were going to suffer further consequences upon it. Now, what's really interesting to me as we look at this text together, not only do we see the grace of being offered to them, but we also see that God is further drawing out from them repentance. How do we know this? The phrase in Hebrew, what is this that God has done to us, is extremely similar to other passages within the Old Testament. As one wrote, he said, here they link implicitly the unexpected discovery of the money in their bags with the money they earlier received for the sale of Joseph. Their brother, uh, what is this that God has done to us, is not the same but is close to the expression of what is this you have done, in which offended parties called offering, offending persons to an explanation and justification of his or her misdeeds. So let me explain what I'm saying here. In Hebrew, the original language, there is familiarity between various phrases of a combination of Hebrew words. And this one individual says that this combination, this phrase, is extremely similar to that of Genesis 3.13. Of course, that's when the Lord pursued Adam and Eve in hopes of repentance. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The question that God poses is a question that is meant to require the individual asked to reveal their sin. In Genesis 4.10, the very next chapter, we read, And he, that is God, said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Of course, speaking to Cain and Abel. 
But in this question, as one grammatic expert stated, whether the formula is, what is this that you have done, or what is this God has done to us, no answer to the question is needed for guilt is apparent. So this statement that they make is directly correlated with the guilt and the conviction in which they are feeling. What has God done to us? Why has this occurred? And undoubtedly fear is now beginning to grip their hearts. How can we return to Egypt with Benjamin? And now we'll be accused not only of being spies, but now we're also going to be thieves. I want all of us to understand how fear works in the life of the Christian. God will allow us and those in the world to experience fear as a result of the consequences of our sins. That fear is not from God, but again, it's derived from our conscience being uh, seared or being burned or being affected by the sin in which we've committed. A guilty conscience is what I'm referring to. But as one wrote, he said this. He said, God works in our hearts through the fears that strike us. When fear strikes, God wants us to examine our lives to see if other people or circumstances have caused the fear. Now, if they have, he says, then God will help us and strengthen us to walk through that fear. But God also wants us to examine our lives to see if we have somehow caused this fear. We can bring fear upon ourselves by some irresponsible behavior or by committing sin. If we are the cause, God wants us to correct our irresponsible behavior. God wants us to confess our sins and to repent of it. As God said to his people who were despondent to him in the book of Isaiah, even though he had sent Isaiah to them and tried to call them back to repentance, they continued on in their sins. And finally, God said, okay, that's it. Now I have to get involved directly. And in Isaiah 66, 4, he says this. So I will choose their delusion, he says, and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that which I do not delight. As one said in comment to this, he says, for God does not bring a spirit of fear upon us. Our own irresponsible behavior and sin does that. But God does use fear to stir our conscience. God does use fear to arouse us to do Several things such as repent. As Christians, as Christians, when we sin, because God loves us too much to leave us the way He found us, and because God knows that that sin ultimately will destroy us and our relationship with Him, it'll rob us of the blessings that He has for us. It'll hinder us from fulfilling the most basic principles that he has planned for us here in this world. 
But as a Christian, Timothy wrote, I'm sorry, Paul wrote to Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. I do not walk with a sense of dread before God as a Christian. Now, I fear him in the sense that I awe and reverence him, that I respect him, and I realize that exactly who he says he is. That's the fear of the God that the Old Testament speaks of. But I do not walk in dread of him because God desires a love relationship with each and every one of us. He did not say, I want you to fear the Lord thy God with dread and sorrow and panic and worry and, you know, freaking out, okay? That's the technical word in Greek. With all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't say that, did he? He says, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, and by the way, the reason that we love in that way is because God first loved us and demonstrated that love through the sending of His only Son, Jesus Christ. But God does allow us to reap the consequences of our sin. And He does allow that fear that comes upon us after we have sinned to draw us back to Him. He doesn't use condemnation where... He throws us in a corner and says, I want nothing to do with you and just stay there and so forth. Satan is the one who likes to condemn us and say, hey, after what you have done, you have no business going to church. If you walk into church after what you have done, the whole thing is going to burn down. I actually had someone after one of our Easter services walk in, sit and enjoy the service. And in in the lobby, I saw them looking around like this. And I went up to her and I said, you know, uh, can I help you? Thank you for joining us. And she said, oh, I'm glad to be here, but I'm shocked. I thought for sure if I walked in, the church was going to burn down. I'm like, well, that's good to know. You're leaving when? No. (laughs) God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work through condemnation. He works through conviction in the life of his children. He convicts our hearts. And that conviction, unlike condemnation, which drives us from God, Conviction draws us to God to help us and to motivate us to repent. And I believe that's what we're seeing here in the life of the brothers. They look at this pessimistically, but they're looking at it vertically. Horizontally, it is God drawing from them true repentance so he can begin the process of reconciliation and he can complete that with restoration. Now I'm going to throw one more thing at you. It's going to blow your mind. In chapter 43, verse 23, when they do go back to Egypt with Benjamin, there I gave the story away, Joseph says something very interesting to them after they tried to explain to him that they didn't steal the money. In fact, in Genesis 43, 23, but he, that is Joseph, says, Peace be with you, and, and do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. And then he says, I had your money. Then brought Simeon out to them. What does he mean by this? 
Well, many of the commentators believe that what has occurred is that they did take the brothers' money from them for the purchase of the grain. But it was Joseph who personally purchased the grain for them and returned money to them. An incredible act of grace on his behalf. I had your money. But no, it's in our sack. It's because you gave it to me and I put it back. I paid for it. Isn't that so like God? When it comes to our sin, there's nothing that we can do to atone for our sin before God. There's not a thing. If I were to stand before God, there is nothing I could do to overcome the sin in my life. And that's where God steps in through the gospel and says, what you can't do for yourself, I will do for you. You can't save yourself. You can't restore yourself. You cannot reconcile yourself. But I can do it in and through Christ. What you can't do, I can do. And in that beautiful transaction, and it was a transaction, that's what God said when He said from the cross to Telestai, it is finished. It was stamped, paid in full. Your sin has been dealt with once and for all at the cross. The grace of God demonstrated through forgiveness and forgiveness demonstrated through the grace of God. They work in synergy with one another. They were amazed but pessimistically looked at what they saw. How often do we find ourselves in a situation, in circumstances that we don't understand from our perspective and the first conclusion we draw is a vertical one and we get ourselves all worried, anxious, fearful, etc. about it. And yet, in and through it all, it is just another step in God fulfilling His plan and purpose. We just need to wait on Him. But like sons, like father, let us read on to discover that Jacob too, immediately when he heard these words, looked at it from a vertical perspective rather than a horizontal one, not even thinking that God could do something great. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the middle of the land of Canaan, verse 29, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, that is, of course, their thoughts of Joseph, and the youngest is with our father in the, this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men, Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone and bring your younger brother to me so I shall know that you are not spies but that you are honest men. And I will grant your brother to you, that is Simeon, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack, and when they had their father, uh, when they and their father saw the bundles of money, again notice they were afraid. 
And Jacob, their father, said to them, You believe me. Joseph is no more. You breathed me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. His first conclusion. It seems, by the language used here, that Jacob is now wondering if the brothers had something to do with Joseph's death. By saying, you have bereaved me, may indicate that. And now you've lost Simeon. And now you want to take Benjamin. And his immediate conclusion is that this is all going to work out terribly. And I'm going to lose all of you in the end. For these things are against me. In verse 37, then Reuben spoke to his father saying, Now, how would you like to have a dad like this? Kill my two sons if I do not bring back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Can you imagine Reuben's two sons standing next to their dad and then hearing that and just... (laughs) I I mean, Reuben, this isn't a very smart thing to say, is it? But Jacob wanted nothing to do with it, and I'm glad for that. Notice with me, he says this, but he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. Jacob didn't even seem to consider the other sons. He was primarily focused on Joseph and on Benjamin, the sons of Rachel, in whom was the wife in which, of course, died by this time. But he realizes that these are the only two offspring from her, and he already believes that he's lost Joseph, and now he doesn't want to lose Benjamin. He's already drawing the conclusion that everything is going to work out negatively against him. And again, this is indicative of a vertical perspective. And I, would, I understand it. I, am, I understand it. I can't say that I would think any differently being in Jacob's position. Especially if you had Jacob's backstory. Jacob always got himself in trouble. He was always scheming and trying to bring things about. In fact, actually having to be broken by the Lord himself in doing it. But he brought consequence upon consequence upon consequence upon himself for doing so. I get it. I get where Jacob is coming from. But he is leaving out a big part of the puzzle. And that is God. Immediately concluding that everything is going to go south on him. He says this, If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Fatalism. It is easy to conclude after a series of disappointments that disappointments are always going to follow in the future. And in so doing and in so thinking that way, we grow fatalistic. It's never worked out before and therefore it's never going to work out going forward. And yet God shows us time and time and time again that that isn't necessarily true, is it? 
Because often we don't know what he's doing and we are limited to the perspective of the day in which we occupy and the knowledge of the history in which we existed within. That's all we have. But God knows the future. And every single time in the Bible that we think that things have been stymied and that God has been frustrated in his plans and purposes, we find and discover that God was in control the entire time and everything worked out perfectly. Oh, not necessarily the way we wanted it to, but it worked out perfectly. This is why I encourage you to pray and wait on God. I know all of us were discouraged after Tuesday night. We had a lot of questions about what they thought was going to happen and what actually happened. And we could draw and run to many conclusions and debate what really did happen Tuesday night during the election. But here's the thing. As I was driving Tuesday afternoon, the Lord spoke to my heart. He said, has anything really changed? Has God, have I been unseated from the throne? I know exactly what I'm doing. God's going to bring about his plan and purposes perfectly. And all of us have been praying for revival. We want to see people get saved. All of us have loved ones, co-workers, friends, sons, daughters, maybe dads and moms, etc., who don't know Christ. And maybe God has to change our circumstances before people start turning to Him. Oh, the one thing that we have learned is that in the world, the individuals are not finding the answers in which they are looking for. We know that only God has those answers. And even in a state like California, which is so restrictive in so many ways, 8,900 people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You see, when God works, He doesn't ask permission. He works. And that night, He had an appointment with 8,900 people perfectly. And I say this, if God can work in California, God can work anywhere, okay? We need to be horizontal in our thinking. Oh yes, vertically we will be perplexed at times. Our vertical perspective may lean us into fear and anxiety and worry. But it's at those moments, may I encourage you, to bring God back into the equation. It's okay to say, God, I don't know what you're doing. And that's a good confession. You know why? Because he's God and you're not. But I know you're doing. I know you're working. I know you're bringing about your plan. And there is no better example of this than Jesus Christ. When the religious leaders finally had their way to bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate, not wanting to crucify Jesus directly or punish him further than the scourging, Pontius Pilate had the idea saying, listen, 
let's bring two prisoners before you and you decide what you want to happen. And of course, you all know that the, the population of Israel, Jerusalem at that time, spurred by the religious leaders, all cried out for Barabbas. They voted for Barabbas and didn't vote for Jesus. And Pontius Pilate knew that Jesus had done nothing to warrant execution because Jesus was perfect. He was God. But according to God's plan, this is what needed to happen. And as they took him, and as they marched him down the Via Della Rosa in Israel, carrying his cross, at one point stumbling, somebody having to carry it for him, finally getting to Calvary, Golgotha, where he was then nailed to that cross and hung between two thieves at that moment. They jeered, they mocked as people passed. They took his garments and the little possessions that he had and cast lots to see who would get them. It would appear that everything that Jesus had set out to do failed. The religious leaders were washing their hands, saying, hey, finally we can get back to it and we don't have this troublemaker anymore. But something in their mind was worried, weren't they? We got to make sure that this is going to go exactly the way we want. We don't want any kind of conspiracy theory that he rose on the third day as he claimed he would. So I want you to send Roman guards around the tomb, which they complied and sent Roman guards around the tomb. But yet, even with all of that, on the third day when the women came to tend to the body of Jesus, he wasn't there. You see, when God works, he doesn't ask permission. He works. And God's not going to ask permission. He's going to work. And I believe it is more important now than ever that we be about seeking and saving those who are lost. Getting into conversations, allowing ourselves to be approachable, letting people ask about the gospel, talking with them. They have questions. They have concerns. They know themselves that things are going in the wrong direction. Regardless of an election outcome, nothing has changed. God is still in control. And let us know that everything that happens in our life as Christians, as Romans 8.28 tells us, and we know that all things, that is all things, work together for good. To those, number one, who love God, and number two, are called according to his purposes. Everything that's happening is working for good in our life. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. The reason so many Christians are pessimistic is because they have placed incorrect expectations upon God. They may have believed that once they became a Christian, that God was going to make everything perfect within their life that he was going to smooth out all of the bumps and it wouldn't be difficult to follow him. Maybe they believed that God was going to provide everything that they wanted rather than everything that they needed. And because their expectation, which was a false expectation from the beginning, hadn't been fulfilled, they have grown discouraged. They have grown pessimistic. 
That's why Paul in Romans 8.29, the very following verse, defines for us what that word good actually means. We may define it the way we want, but God defines it the way He wants. For in Romans 8.29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be, here is the good, conformed into the image of His Son. He is making us more like Jesus. All things are working together to make us more like Jesus. And the work that he has started, in verse 30, will be completed. Moreover, whom he has predestined, these he has also called, and whom he has called, these he has also justified, and whom he has justified, these he will also glorify. It's a lot of him and none of us in this process. He's going to finish the work that he has started in you. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. I am encouraged. Oh, not because of what's happening around me. And it's not that I want to see people suffer. What I want to see is people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I hope to see. And if these are the circumstances, the culture that needs to be created to allow that to happen then so be it. And lastly, Isaiah 55, 9, we are reminded that God said to us, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Chuck Swindoll left us with a question. He said this. He says, Call to mind the most recent major test that you have experienced. Did you rest calmly in him, or did you push the panic button out of fear? For the negative thinking or the pessimistic attitude, the horizontal viewpoint, a closed mind to something that is unexpected and new, that, that's why we tend to panic, because humanly speaking, you and I have been programmed towards defeat. We have formed habits of response that leave God out of the picture. We don't actually announce it in those words. We just model it and rationalize around it by calling it something else. And aren't we relieved that God didn't put our biography into print? Meaning, the story's not over. God is still working. And you shall see the work in which he has done for you.